Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. We're very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Leo Sprinkle, a true pioneer in the esoteric realm of uh, the UFO field. Dr. Sprinkle, we'll work up to Leo in a little while. Okay. Uh, <laughs> how does someone uh, from the quote-unquote normal world get involved in the realm of UFO study? Well, there were two factors. One, my own experiences as a child and, and my sightings of a strange craft with a buddy of mine when we were students at the University of Colorado in Boulder, 1949. And then my wife and I had a sighting in 1956. So the personal aspect was already there. <clears throat> and then... As a professional person in 1961, when I finished the doctoral studies, I joined NICAP and APRO, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena and the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and became a consultant to APRO. And uh, they were very, Jim and Coral Lorenzen were very helpful in not only working with people like uh, Jim Harder and Frank Salisbury, but with a lot of people who had had uh, UFO experiences, and their their take I liked. They didn't uh, try to run up against the uh, military and governmental opposition. They said, well, let's do what we can outside the uh, censorship or the denial. And so uh, I was able to meet with a lot of interesting people over the years. I wanted to ask you a couple of things about that before we go on with the entire discussion, because I knew very casually Jim and Coral Lorenzen. I'm not... As young as people think I am, I'm actually 177 <laughs> years old, but I want to admit that to David, he's listening. And I also knew very casually Major Donald Kehoe. So we have the two approaches here where the Lorenzans wanted to gather data, and they didn't call it UFOs, they called it what, unidentified aerial phenomena or something like that? Right. Right, UAP. And Major Kehoe was very much involved in getting congressional hearings, dealing with government secrecy, etc., so did you run into crosshairs with Major Kehoe because of this, or what? Uh, no, of course, I didn't know him uh, personally. I was a member, and I contributed uh, every now and then to the cause. And uh, I felt like both approaches were okay, kind of a one-two punch, uh, so that uh, he was trying to get more recognition and acceptance uh, from military and congressional Sources and uh, I liked that, but I also felt that the Lorenzans were right on when they said, "Let's learn as much as we can from the experiencers." So ultimately, uh, Doctor Sprinkle, what did they learn, or what do you feel they learned that was of any lasting value? I think there were a couple of uh, areas where they uh, did well. For example, in South America, there were a lot of uh, sightings. In the Doctor Olavo Fontes, an MD, uh, who. Uh, had a view about the propulsion system of uh, the unidentified flying objects and also his work with uh, a man out in the field in 1958 before the Betty and Barney Hill case so that he knew that there were encounters and uh, that uh, became kind of the focus uh, for the Apple people. They did a lot of studies, surveys, 
writing books and so forth, but they also concentrated on what can they learn from the person who has the encounter. Hmm. And um, what ultimately, because in this field, as we don't have to tell you, it's so hard to arrive at any nuggets of solid information. Everything seems so ephemeral. What ultimately do you feel? This is here. We're just going to throw a meta question out. What do you feel we have learned about this in the sixty yeah. odd years that there's been? My take, yeah, my take on it is that there are physical things going on, and a lot of people focus on the physical phenomena, the craft, and that's good. Uh, ultimately, though, it's like uh, kicking the tires to find out about the engine. Uh, so a lot of people have made good work and taken good photographs and movies of the physical phenomenon. But after a while, it, uh, it thins out. So then people turn to the biological questions, the ETs themselves. Are they uh, critters in flesh and blood, or are they clones? Uh, and a lot of good work has been done over the years to find out about the number of groups, the number of uh, ET races that are involved. But then eventually that runs out. And then the next level is the psychological aspect, what's happening to people, what's happening when they uh, encounter ETs, uh, learn more about their messages. Uh, and then uh, when that gets fuzzy, then we move up to the next level, and that's the spiritual level. And, of course, that is the scary part for many people because not only are we getting messages from uh, ETs, but we're getting messages about ourselves. And uh, that is where a lot of people get frightened. We're finding out the possibility that we were uh, created by the ETs, the gods, the angels, or whatever people want to call them. Some people want to call them the, de the demons. So we're getting a picture that says uh, no le one level will get us where we want to go. The, the physical information is good. The biological information is good. The psychological information is good. The spiritual information is good. And so we're supposed to put it together in one meaningful uh, picture, and that's where we are. Okay, this gets very complicated when you get messages from alleged ETs telling you something. Now, is it the intention of whatever they are to communicate something with us of a meaningful nature, you know, get our acts together, or is this some kind of deception? Because that's also an issue that's been raised by a lot of researchers over the years. If we use the educational model, you know, I recognize the possibility that there are evil ETs and they are uh, trying to destroy us, uh, eat us, get rid of us, or whatever. That's one possibility. They would get indigestion with me and Dave, I'm going to tell you that right now. No way are the ETs going to eat us for lunch. It's hard enough just, you know, maybe they should if it's painless, you know. One bite, we're gone, Zach. So the, there are many hypotheses about the ETs themselves. One book that I like, Jim Mars, M-A-R-R-S, uh, he says the alien agenda, and he uh, does a very good job of it, like he usually does, investigating all the various cases and the possibilities. And he winds up with a thesis, their agenda are we. Or like Pogo said many years ago, we have found the enemy and the enemy is us. Uh, so that we're the uh, cat's meow or we're the uh, important thing. If we use an educational model, which I like, then it's easier to look at it. We see some kids in the seventh grade, they say, oh, the teacher is terrible. She's doing this to us and she's doing that to us. And somebody else might say, oh, the teacher is wonderful. Same teacher, but two different reactions. So that's how I became interested in reincarnation years ago when I was looking at various people and finding out that they were getting um, encounters with ETs and they were getting messages. 
and some of the messages were frightening and some of the messages were promising. And I thought, well, why do people have different kinds of encounters? And then began to recognize that uh, we bring into the experience ourselves some attitudes, just like kids will bring into the schoolyard or into the classroom uh, different attitudes about education, about how they're learning. I use that as the model to look at and say, this helps me find out why people get uh, some negative messages uh, and deception or why some people get positive messages and feel like they're growing. Uh, Leo, let's go along a thread there for a moment, because uh, when we hear about people saying, well, it's about us, for some of us, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a moment here, because I'm not disagreeing with that necessarily, but if we look at the the history of human civilization, there has always been this human-centric attitude. Uh, At one point, we really believed that the entire universe and every star in the sky rotated around the Earth, uh, then we got to the point in history where we realized that, no, that's not true. The Earth is not the center of the universe, but yet there's a persistent religious view that whatever it is that created this universe is just like us, you know, created in God's image. So when we talk about this idea of it's all about us, as someone who's well-versed in psychology, at what point do you filter out the um, sort of selfish, human-centric view of this and perhaps try to see this in a more objective light. Yeah, when they're when they're moving from the uh, human to the spiritual uh, level, that's when it uh, is the crux, in my opinion. You know, you heard that cliche: we're not uh, humans on a spiritual journey; we're spirits on a human journey. And the same way, when people begin to recognize that we're important, not because we are humans—that's a dime a dozen—but we're important because we're souls. Well, so that's still causes fear among some people. You mean they're not interested in our bodies, they don't want to eat us? No. You mean they're not interested in our minds, they don't want to take us over uh, mentally? No. Oh, that means they want to grab our souls. And so the fear is still there. Uh, But it's also possible for a kid in school to recognize that he or she is important not because of his own personal or her own uh, personal situation, but because the teachers here say, can you learn, can you grow, can you contribute to uh, your classmates, can you contribute to the school, can you contribute to your community? And so my take on it is that we're being uh, programmed or pushed or nagged or uh, encouraged, whatever people feel, to not only take care of ourselves and the planet, but also to join the Galactic Federation and contribute to the uh, cosmic society. Well, based on, if we were to play, if we role play here, the idea of coming in, flying into the planet Earth, picking up on its uh, radio and television transmissions, this is a topic that's been covered more than a few times in science fiction. It strikes me personally that one would get the idea that as far as um, spiritual evolution goes, humans are, are not very far along. Uh, we, we seem extremely violent, <laughs> right. extremely self-destructive. Spiritualism is something that we uh, seem to pay a lot of lip service to, but ultimately when it comes right down to it, and I think it's easy to make this argument certainly for the last couple of thousand years, uh, it seems like humans have a very short view of themselves and of their place in the universe in terms of what they say they believe and then the disparity between that and and their actions so so how do you reconcile that if there's a a species that can move between stars that can use 
technology that we have absolutely no, not only no understanding of, but I, I suspect no ability to even understand it, our current state of scientific evolution. How do you reconcile the idea that there's an advanced species that uh, seems to feel we're at some point where they can move us ahead spiritually? Yeah, if you look at the big picture, there are some minds are much better than mine who argue that uh, civilizations go through stages. If they use the terms in terms of how much energy they uh, put out, then that's uh, one level of the stage. And some people would argue that these civilizations uh, might uh, succeed and become intelligent and might be able to uh, move toward other planets, or they might not. They might blow themselves up and uh, go out. And so just like a, there might be a school where some kids are uh, being encouraged to grow on through the uh, classes, and uh, sometimes uh, the student will succeed, sometimes the student won't succeed. So looking at the big picture, according to some of these minds, we don't know yet whether Earth and humanity are going to succeed and becoming, quote, intelligent and becoming able to uh, to go out and, uh, you know, meet with other civilizations. So that it might be that the people, uh, the ETs, are standing outside looking, watching, to see whether we'll grow up, to see whether we will uh, succeed or whether we won't. But looking at it from more a little closer, we would say that it, just like a teacher might say to a student, well, I'm afraid that you may flunk, but I'm willing to work extra with you. Well, a lot of people are using that as kind of a model for saying right now at this time, 2012 is a crucial time. The Mayan calendar from 3113 B.C. to uh, December of, uh, some people say November, October of, of 2012 is a crucial time to see whether we will, quote, grow up, uh, unquote, and whether we'll be open to uh, further instruction. Yeah, in many ways, the um, the hoopla around 2012, uh, distinctly, I think, for a lot of us, reminds us of the Y2K meltdown. Yeah, right. Uh, uh -huh. This expectation that uh, there would be some tremendous meltdown society. And uh, actually, just in the last couple of days, I posted something on our forums about a piece I read online discussing the idea that with solar flare activity, there is some possibility, though, the, the report lacked some hard scientific evidence behind it, but that there was some possibility that in 2012, solar flare activity will peak in a way where there, there is a danger, or theoretically there's a danger, of uh, the electronic communication systems and all of the electrical systems on the planet basically getting fried. Before we get completely fried, though, I'm about <laughs> to get fried. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to 
news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're talking to Dr. Leo Sprinkle, and we're focusing on the messages or the things we need to know to straighten ourselves out. David? Well, as I, as I was asking, Leo, what happens when 2012 comes and we're standing here in December, late December of 2012, and outside of the normal course of problems that humans are likely to run through between now and then, what happens when there is no great, or let's say, let's play again a what-if game here. Uh, there is no great episode that happens. There is no uh, awakening. There is no monumental sign of some drastic change. Again, just projecting out, what, what do you think that will do to the whole idea that we're discussing here, that there is some milestone that will be reached? What happens if that milestone doesn't show up? It may not be a milestone. It may be a mental change. Some people use the word prophecy uh, as uh, distinguished from prediction. Prediction says uh, by such and such a time, such and such event will occur. Prophecy is a little different according to some writers. If a mother looks at a son who's riding his bicycle without holding onto the handlebars, she might say, watch out, son, you're going to fall off and you're going to hit your head on the pavement and your eyeballs will pop out and your eyeballs will go down the a ditch and they, and they go into the ocean and the fish will eat them. Well, she's not predicting that a fish is going to eat their son's eyeball. She's prophesying. And the prophecy has not only an element of prediction, but it also has an element of uh, change, be a lesson, learning. So uh, in Wyoming, we talk about rodeos and uh, what's called a hazer. If a bulldogger is on his horse and he's trying to chase down the bull, well, he's got uh, some help on the other side, a hazer who keeps the bull running in a straight line so that the bulldogger can uh, reach over and get the horns. In the same way, some people are arguing, and I like the argument, that the ETs have uh, several groups. You know, just like if you got your nurses, you got your physicians, you have your teachers, you have your cops, and uh, each one has a certain job. So if a person begins to think that uh, he is really important because he's had a UFO experience or an ET encounter, well, then he'll get slammed and to keep on the road, not to go around bragging that he's had the ET contact, but to learn from it and to do something with it. So uh, I'm using that as an example, the prophecy, uh-huh. saying that when we get to the point, person might, the teacher might say to the student, if you don't do your homework, you're not going to graduate in 2012. And so he gets busy and he does his homework so he can graduate by 2012. It may not be a big picture in 2012. It may be a whole bunch of little pictures where people are learning and growing, and then they say that they've changed, even though there may not be any apparent change on the outside. So is it then a flaw of human personality and uh, human psychology that people will, for example, take a single paranormal event or encounter, as minimal as it might be, and let's assume for a moment that it's a quote-unquote genuine paranormal encounter, uh, whether it be a UFO sighting, some sort of... uh, of an interaction with the spirit world, yeah, they'll have one encounter. Near death experience, yeah, yeah right. absolutely. Now, and, and near death experiences, of course, are their own unique little category because of the 
uh, constant bickering back and forth of whether or not the, these experiences are not paranormal in nature, but instead are part of a fairly predictable cerebral mechanism that is happening towards uh, the position where someone is, is in danger of losing their lives. Let's say extreme oxygen deprivation to the brain. Um, and I'm not saying that I necessarily believe that near-death experiences are not legitimate, uh, but there we do have the potential of, of finding a physiological underpinning for the phenomenon. And, uh, and really, at that point, we're sort of at the edge of what we can test and what we can know. But getting back to someone who, for example, has one paranormal experience, and, and there are certainly characters in the UFO field that will have one experience when they're a child, and essentially that will create a sort of a domino effect of psychological uh, uh, changes by where one UFO scene in Berkeley, California in the 60s, uh, 30, 40 years later, ends up being, my God, I know the propulsion systems and how they work, and I know how to recreate these things. It, it, is that basically the danger of a, a frail psychological framework inside of someone where one experience will tip them over the edge? <laughs> That's the burden and the blessing. If a person catches a football and uh, enjoyed that so much that it led him down the path into playing uh, football in grade school and high school and college and pro, a person could look and say, well, you're basing your whole effort, your sweat, your broken bones and your body on the basis of that one catch when you were a little kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some people do. But on the other hand, we can also say that that person probably had caught a lot more footballs over the years. And the same way most people I work with who've had a strange experience when they were children, they also had encounters when they were older, too. So it's like a, like for me, uh, I recognized that uh, my childhood experiences were important for me. And then a the later experience, it was just kind of signposts along the road. I can remember we were talking one time with, uh, uh, with Arthur C. Clarke. He was invited hmm. to the University of uh, Wyoming by students, and they knew of my interest in UFO research, so they asked me if I'd introduce him, and I said, sure. So we were, he and I were standing in the back while the student leader was uh, giving her spiel about the program. And uh, before we went on, I asked him, I said, uh, Sir, do you mind uh, if I ask you what's your take on flying saucers? And he dismissed the question as if it were unimportant. Well, it depends upon your view whether they're important or unimportant. And I said, well, do you mind my asking, what do you mean by that? He said, well, look, uh, flying saucers are like uh, signs. You know, a highway sign with a stick of wood and a plate of metal, that's not very interesting by itself. But on the plate of metal, there could be a symbol, bridges out or danger ahead or, or whatever. And he, so he said, UFO sightings are just signposts. Uh, he said, as a matter of fact, when... Uh, Kubrick and I were planning the uh, 2001 movie. We had a sighting, a UFO sighting that night. I said, you did, and I wanted to <laughs> ask him about it. Hmm. But we had, we had to go on. So his take, and I like it, is that uh, UFO experiences or any other thing that a person calls significant, near-death experience or having cancer and getting over it or anything else in a person's life, to me, is a signpost. How does a person use it? Does the person use that signpost and say, oh, I'm 20 miles out of Cheyenne and I'll never get there, I quit? Or somebody else might say, oh, I'm 20 miles out of Cheyenne, I'm going to keep going. So it depends upon the human spirit. 
in my opinion, how the person uses his or her encounter, how he or she uses the information, the experience that uh, is happening to him. And if enough of us use the experience to say, hey, we're tired of being denied information about uh, flying saucers, about ETs, we would like our government to release information. When enough of us feel that way, then I think that it will happen. What if the government knows as little as we do? <laughs> this is the topic that keeps well, coming up in the podcast in the okay. light of the discussion of disclosure, where there is an expectation that the government has some vast amount of information that they've been withholding, and, and more than a vast amount of information, perhaps have reached some conclusions. What do we do if we find out that, let's say, a disclosure happens, a bunch of information comes forward, and this information indicates to us that the government essentially does not understand what this is, does not understand where this comes from, and the insecurity surrounding that lack of understanding ends up being the real reason for the secrecy. I've been reading a book by Robert Hastings called uh, UFOs and Nukes, and now I'm reading a book by, uh, what's his name, uh, Story? or Anyway, Close well, Encounters on Capitol Hill. It's obvious to me, it's obvious to anybody who uh, knows what's uh, going on, that there is more information. It may not be ultimate information. It may be like the kid in high school who finds out that his teachers in high school don't know as much as the professors do at the university. So he said, I'm going to go to the university and find out. So even if the question that you ask has the answer that the governments don't know much, then at least what we could do is say, well, let's check with the ET. Let's uh, talk with them and find out what they know. Hmm. See, th this ends up, though, this is where we start to run into the polarization issues. And, you know, we find people that essentially, for example, are not really interested in gaining an understanding, an objective understanding of what's going on, but instead end up protecting personal viewpoints and agendas. And, and, and I'm putting this to you because I know that you've been involved in this field for so long. You're a very well-respected uh, player in this field. And... I would imagine that you've perhaps come to some, not conclusions, but you've come to have some opinions about some of the more extreme personalities who get involved in this field, who, again, basically say, uh, look, the government needs to release this information because we want them to. Uh, and and uh, there are a number of people who basically seem to take that stance. Do you ultimately think that people, again, looking at how people treat their reality that they know about the way that uh, the way that we, for example, is, as Americans, exist in the world and our dynamics with other countries. Do you think that we're at a point where we're essentially psychologically stable enough to find out that the government doesn't know what's going on? If that were the case, yes, I think that uh, more and more people are ready for whatever the answer might be, that uh, governments, you know, that Dolan and others who are historians, they argue that uh, it was during the uh, Truman administration that it got away from the White House. Uh, there are many people who argue that the uh, information about ET contacts, possible uh, contracts with ET groups and so forth, <clears throat> that that information was known uh, early on, 60 years ago, uh, but then, uh, during Truman administration, it left the White House in its, its international scope and away from uh, governmental level. Presidents, according to some people, have up to level 26 or whatever 
uh, need to know, but uh, there are levels beyond that. Go beyond nuclear, go beyond black projects, go beyond what they call gray projects. That black projects are the weapons, the gray projects are the ET. And even if that isn't true, and even if the people behind the denial or the cover-up don't know very much, even so, people claim that I talk with, that they have talked with ETs, so why not everybody, chummy chummy, get together and ask ETs to talk to us? Well, it may well be that the ETs themselves are struggling. It may be that there are groups that are fighting over whether uh, the planet and humanity are partners or whether they are uh, plunderers, you know, to, to be plundered. So I don't know the answer to those questions, but what I am claiming is that if more and more people in the U.S. ask for a release of information and vote in senators. Uh, I'll give you an example. Years ago in 1984, I was at, uh, at a UFO conference at the University of Wyoming, and there were about 150, 200 people. And one woman was distressed, and she said, Leo, what can we do as citizens? So I looked at her, and I said, well, there's an election coming up, so what I suggest is you vote in uh, female uh, leaders. <laughs> well, we had our chance. We had our chance. <laughs> Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service go to meeting just got easier if you haven't tried go to meeting now's the time because the new version of go to meeting has fully integrated voice over ip with this new total audio feature you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web save time save money and be more efficient Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. I have to tell you, we're talking to Leo Sprinkle, and we're focusing now on what the government may or may not know. So your suggestion, putting in female leaders, we had a chance in the United States, but we decided to go for the other guy on the Democratic side. And I wanted to kind of, because you raised a few possibilities here, and I always remember that scene going back, how many years ago, the movie Independence Day, where they're in the underground bunker in Area 51, 
and the president says to his national secretary or whatever, you mean you people knew about this place all these years and you didn't tell me? And the guy says something about plausible deniability. The theory he had come up with here is that it may not necessarily be a formalized agency that might constitute this, to quote Major Kehoe, the silence group. It might be career government people because the politicians, they're temporary occupants, the White House, senators, congressmen. Some stay, you know, pretty long, but they're temporary. The cabinet appointees are temporary. But you've got people working in the government year after year after year from administration to administration. So is this something that could be carried on in that fashion? Yeah, there's a book by Weber, uh, Exopolitics. Uh, Sala, Dr. Michael Sala has written on Exopolitics. Uh, there are people who seem to be inside, have inside information, which suggests that uh, the Carter administration tried to get a group going for a release of information that didn't pan out. Then uh, the uh, Clinton administration was close to it but didn't work. You sometimes might want to have a man on your interview, Dr. C.B. Scott Jones. He's a Ph.D. political scientist. He was a former Navy officer. He's, uh, he was an aide to Senator Pell, who died recently, and he's been a consultant of Rockefeller. He claims there are three different programs. A was with the help of a president, B was without the help of a U.S. president, and C is now the international uh, effort to release information about the E.T. presence. And uh, he argues that the Plan C has been moving along from 2006-2007, and supposedly by the end of 2008, which recently happened, supposedly that plan is in place. And now it's up to the ETs to decide when uh, the presence will be announced. The information seems to be uh, good evidence, and uh, he seems to be an authoritative person who argues that uh, it's going to happen. Just one example, he said there were rumors that the Indian Space Agency uh, doing its two-year mission to the moon, which supposedly was going to happen in July, but supposedly didn't happen until October. Uh, the rumor is that the Indian Space uh, Agency will announce the discovery of ET bases. Well, if that happens, then that'll be an international crisis, and uh, we'll have to do something about it, which means everybody will have to come together and say, what should we do? Should we shoot first and ask questions later, or should we... Uh, have a concerted effort to uh, welcome the ETs, or just what should we do? Well, but see, here's the problem, Leo. And again, uh, we, we were very uh, thrilled to have you on the show because you have a very solid reputation. That is not the case for lots of other people who are involved in this field. Now, you brought up a specific name, uh, Michael Sala, who, uh, and I don't want our listeners to confuse uh, this Sala with uh, Robert Salas who is the uh, the military person who was involved in the Maelstrom uh, UFO case back in the right, 1960s. Right. Mm -hmm. But when you bring up Michael Sala, I've seen Michael Sala speak. We've had on a couple of his associates. And it's, it's I'm going to say it's my opinion. I'm not sure if I'll speak for Gene on this. And Gene, you can, you can chime in if, if that's the case. Go but for it, man. I tend to think well, it probably is. It's our opinion that Michael Sala is uh, a charlatan. He just doesn't present anything solid at all. Again, you, you kind of have to judge people by the company they keep. Some of the people who are associated with Michael Sala 
are you have someone like Alfred Weber who has publicly stated that the World Trade Centers were brought down by a particle beam weapon reverse engineered from extraterrestrial technology. I think I have a fairly open mind about this stuff, but to me that is patently nonsensical. It's ridiculous. And and this is the problem in trying when we talk about moving our awareness and our spirituality forward. But the problem with that is that this is a pool that's very polluted. And and the Paracast has, has taken a bit of a stance that we are going to separate the signal from the noise. And when you bring up someone like Salas, for example, Michael Sala had been promoting this idea that there was a meeting at the UN discussing the ET situation. And just the most basic armchair research confirmed rather handily that that was completely fabricated. Oh, and so, you, yeah. I, I don't know where to find that. Could you, do you know where I can find that information? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you some of this after the fact. I'll be happy oh, okay. to. Okay, thank you. Because it, it, when I originally contacted you on the phone to, to come on the show, I started to tell you that I was someone who personally is interested in this topic because of the fact that I'm the, uh, uh, I want to say, victim but uh, I'll just say I, I'm someone who is in a position of having had a lifelong string of paranormal experiences that really span the range, uh, some of which I've spoken about on the show, some of which are so extreme that I simply do not feel comfortable talking about them publicly. Um, and, and so this puts me in a, in a very uncomfortable position of, being aware that there is definitely something going on. When people ask me if I believe in UFOs, I say to them, do you believe in cars? <laughs> like, what? Do you believe in cars? Well, Actually, say, I don't. I think no, right now we should use that. teleportation machines. <laughs> I believe in Stargates, ladies and gentlemen. Cars don't exist. Sorry to hear about your, 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 your asinine belief in Stargates. <laughs> but, but, you know, th th to some of us, this is not an issue of belief. This is an issue of, hey, there's experiential information here, much of it with other witnesses, because I'm the kind of person who I've always been very cautious about parsing my individual experiences with no co-witnesses separately from situations where there are two or three or 200 or 300 people who witness something along with me. So here I am in a position, Leo, where I've had this wide range of ongoing experiences. These are not standalone things. They, they're all over the map, including a number of UFO experiences, one of which I would actually be happy to talk about with you privately but I will never talk about on the Paracast, ever. It's my most extreme one. But with all of this, I find myself in a position where my intellect and my logic is essentially in a tug of war with my spiritual awareness. You know, for people who listen to the show, to hear me even bring up the term spiritual awareness might be a little jarring for them. But And, and I've actually been accused by some of our listeners of, well, you know, as an atheist, don't you believe that? And I say, well, no, wait, what makes you think I'm an atheist? Well, you question religion all the time. That, that's right. But I don't think I would categorize myself as an atheist. I, I think of myself more as a human being who tries to understand that he has severe limitations with regards to comprehending what the nature of reality is. And so in that context, what is your what are your thoughts about 
this fact, and, and, and we can have different opinions about different people, Leo, but as I said, it's, it's pretty clear that there are people in this field who are, they're, they're just, they're not playing with a full deck of cards. Really, truly. Uh, I'd be glad to send you a copy of a review. It's from the Journal of Scientific Exploration by a physicist who argues that uh, now that we have uh, quantum physics as a model, that uh, so-called reality is much different than what we uh, believed in the days of uh, Newtonian science. Mm -hmm. I would agree uh, with that, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I think you would, because he's arguing that just as people used to believe the Earth was flat, then they would find out that you know, if you sent an airplane over the North Pole to, from New York to Moscow, that it would take less gasoline and, and less time to fly the airplane than if you went across the flat Earth. Well, that would be weird. That would be a paranormal. That would be an anomaly. Uh, but now, with our concept of a round Earth, it's not an anomaly. And the same way, when more and more physicists accept quantum physics, uh, that we are not merely observers, we are participants. And when we accept that as, quote, scientists, unquote, then it'll be a different world. And I feel the same way about uh, humanity when we recognize we're not just observing a flying saucer, we are participating in the experience. When we get to that feeling, then we take on a whole different attitude about ourselves. Not uh, The way I capitalize it or kind of make it into a cliche is that we move from being planetary persons to being cosmic citizens. I think of myself as uh, a citizen of Laramie, of Wyoming, of USA, North America, planet, but also I think of myself as a cosmic citizen, and I'm working toward the day when we can acknowledge that. And so I admire you in terms of uh, your strength, that you have the intellectual ability to know what you've experienced, but also to uh, hold on to what you feel is your role uh, as an announcer, as an uh, interviewer, as an intellectual person, as well as a participant. Someday when you reconcile whatever it is that you have experienced, and see yourself not only as an observer of humanity, but as a participant in humanity, my feeling is that you will know what you want to say. Hmm. There's an old saying, from your mouth into God's ears. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> may, it, may it be so. <laughs> if you say it, so it be, shall be written, so it shall be done. Uh, That's even better than the Stargate, you know. I Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Before we adopt this person, his name is Dr. Leo Sprinkle, and he has consented that we can call him Leo. Yes. His wife won't object. 
No. <laughs> because she calls him other things. Oh, man. Well, My wife good. does that, you know. She, you won't well, know what she calls jokes me. today. I see. Oh, listen, I did. Don Rickles yeah. should know from these jokes. Uh, no, he shouldn't. We don't want to screw him up in his old age. He's a funny man. <laughs> but no, Leo, seriously, uh, th th this is the, the dilemma with this. Um, and, and I keep coming back to this because when you talk about being a cosmic citizen, here we are, encumbered by these physical bodies, painfully aware of our limitations, painfully aware of how earthbound we are. I mean, I get in a plane, and, and I get real nervous for the same reasons that I've read that Isaac Asimov got nervous about flying. He didn't like to fly. And when asked about this, he said, I know too much about how a plane works. <laughs> and, and and I feel the same way. I, I, I You know, you're in this tin can flying at 600 miles an hour, and, and you know that it's a tin can with wings, and it's flying. And, and, and it's amazing to me that uh, planes aren't flying out of the sky every day. It truly is. But, you know, you, you sort of muster forward, and you move on, and you do what you have to do. And I think this is probably true about life as well, that we, for so many of us, uh, we ponder these questions. Uh, but then reality sort of intervenes, and it crashes into us. And how does one even start to approach the thought of a sense of, of balance with this? But then, and also tied into that question, we talk about being a cosmic being. Isn't that part of the realm that traditional religion has played the sort of being the explainers of our place in the universe and then do you then sort of compare traditional religion with for example the belief in ufos because there are some people who do believe that extreme interest in this topic and the belief in the things that that you're espousing here isn't indeed nothing more than a surrogate religious system what are your feelings about that yeah, if you take an anthropological point of view, just as uh, there is a section in the book that I'm reading now about the close encounters over Capitol Hill, story of a guy who uh, supposedly is flying an airplane, World War II, has trouble, he crashes into the jungle, the natives gather around, they make a, a little runway for him, he drops off the supplies that he has because he can't uh, get his plane off the ground with and still hold on to those. So he gives the supply to the people. Mm -hmm. Then he takes off. And then for years afterwards, uh, people say uh, John the Sky Man you know, is the one who uh, gave us this food. And so he became kind of a god in their eyes. And I think that's a good example of probably what happened to early humans when the ETs came in their chariots of uh, fire or heaven, uh, clouds from heaven, so that many of the uh, biblical stories and in fact, according to many people like Graham Hancock and others, arguing that every religion has some experience uh, or some encounter with supernatural beings, and that's how the religion uh, came about. And so uh, I accept the uh, anthropological explanation for many of these early developments in humankind as based upon encounters with ETs uh, or whatever. That doesn't detract, in my opinion, from people who have a high level of intelligence, a high level of spiritual awareness. They may not be interested in the dogma religion, but at the same time they could be interested in uh, these encounters. Zachariah Sitchin, for example, argues that uh, early connections with uh, uh, ETs was what led to humanity and the development of civilization. There are others who argue that Atlantis spread out. So I recognize that there are many doubts among learned academic people 
about human history, but I'll give you just one little uh, incident that uh, is interesting to me. I read uh, German and uh, French uh, studies of people who would be taken underground and for several days without clocks, they would be monitored. And it turns out, according to these studies, that the people's diurnal cycle or their daily rhythm was 24 and a half hours or 25 hours. Well, that struck me as strange. Why would that be? If we grew up on planet Earth, we humans would have a 24-hour <laughs> cycle because that's what the claim is that we go around the sun every 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Well, then I, I asked one of my friends, an astronomer, and I don't know if he's right, but he claims that the Martian cycle is 24 hours and 37 minutes. Yeehaw! That says to me that we humans, or at least some of us, came through Mars because if we have a 24 and a half or 25 hour day cycle, then we didn't originate here on planet Earth. So that's very exciting to me to think that uh, uh, maybe someday we can find out whether this information is accurate and whether we did come through Mars. So what I'm claiming is that there's a lot of information and I recognize that some people are silly and some people are crazy and some people are uh, ignorant, but I would uh, prefer talking with as many people as I can to find out what their experiences are and see if we can make a coherent uh, picture of what's going on. Well, sure. The larger data set that you have, the more the more you have to work with, the more likely you are to come up with perhaps not even some coherent answers, but some useful directions. Right. Um, right. And, and, and I would also agree with you that, and I think I've said this on the show before, that uh, it's, it's my belief, I don't know this, but I believe that uh, the history of humanity as we now perceive it is very likely uh, largely wrong and certainly largely incomplete. And, you know, as we look at things like the fossil record, as we look at things like certain types of ruins on the planet, as we understand more about how this planet works, given how little we do understand at this point, it seems clear that uh, there is a good possibility, maybe even a probability, that the true history of this planet is something that's very different than what we assume. But along the same lines, when you're talking about the 24-and-a-half-hour cycle, I'm wondering, did you ask your astronomer friend if there was a possibility? And for those who are, I know actually we have some audience members of the show that very likely are professional astronomers, so I'm sure I'll hear from them after I say this. <laughs> Good. <laughs> might be about to make a fool of myself, but isn't it a possibility <laughs> that, that one of the things that might have happened in the solar system is that positions of planets, the cycles of planets, the motions of planets have changed over time. There certainly seems to be strong indications that the magnetic poles on the planet have switched in the history of the planet. So to me that yeah. almost suggests that maybe maybe at one point planet Earth did have a 24 and a half or 25 hour day uh, night cycle. That's a, that's a possibility, and I know that the work of a guy named Kevin, K-E-V-O-N or Kevon, argues that uh, at this time there are uh, findings from uh, NASA people about the warming. Uh, you know, some people think it's just global warming, but other people say the warming is happening throughout the solar system, right. and maybe yes. maybe throughout the galaxy. If that's true, and I you know I don't have the knowledge and the uh, training to be mm-hmm. able to evaluate that. But if it's true, then that would suggest that much more is going on throughout the galaxy than what we've been told here on the planet. Right. 
Right. And, and I think that's a good possibility. One of the things that, that I think it's important that people understand, and, and I was just mentioning this to a friend the other day, uh, is that humans really need to be humble at this point. It, it wasn't until the last couple of years that we discovered that the majority of matter in the universe is completely unknown to us. Now, basically, we have a handle that there are these things called dark matter and dark energy. They seem to make up the vast bulk of the mass of the known universe. We have absolutely no idea, no idea of what these things are. And when I read something like that, what it, the, the reaction that it elicits in me is that we have to be humble about what we know and what we don't know. And uh, I think it's probably accurate to say, and I think there is an old saying that goes along these lines, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. That's intellectual honesty. Yes. Mm -hmm. And just the same way as Galileo helped us recognize that we move around, the Earth moves around the sun rather than vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, other people, for example, Freud, helped us recognize that much of our consciousness is subconscious. And uh, when we recognize that we have a shadow part or a dark spot, that uh, helps us recognize that we're not always in conscious control. So that each lesson uh, along the way, as you say, helps us to keep our humility uh, rather than to think that we are the cat's meow as far as the galaxy is concerned. Yeah. Well, this is something that certainly uh, on this show we've had our detractors write into us and say, you guys, you're just not polite because you think you know it all. <laughs> I've responded to some of these people saying, do you actually listen to the show? Half the time I'm talking about how, listen, we don't really know. And I, I, I claim to know very little. There, there are certain things I, I do know, though, Leo. And, for example, um, while we've been talking, I looked up online uh, that book, Close Encounters on Capitol Hill by Robert M. Stanley. That's the book you're referring to, right? Oh, yes, right. That's okay. the one I'm reading now. Yeah. Okay. So don't judge a book by its cover is the old saying. All right. Okay. Uh, so I'm looking at the cover of this book, and we have a picture of the White House at night, well lit. And we have what I guess the author claims are some anomalous lights in the sky. I haven't read the book, but I'm assuming that's part of what this book is talking about. There's a cover. You see the White House, and off to the left, there are these uh, sets of double lights up in the sky. And I, and I believe that what the author's claiming, I, I, just looking real quickly on the web here, is that those are indications of, and this is not my terminology, so Gene, don't yell at me, but this author basically I'm going to yell at you. I just say it right <laughs> now. I dare you say it. This author's saying that this, these lights are an indication of a stargate near Capitol Hill. All right. Right on, brother. <laughs> now, here's the thing, Leo. Okay. I don't want to judge a book by its cover, but I can tell you this. I've seen this photo uncropped. When you see this photo uncropped, you get a pretty good idea for what those lights are above. They are reflections of lights below. And this is Photography 101. This shot was taken with a camera, probably on a tripod, with a fairly long exposure time because it's night. And in order to get any kind of detail, you've got to leave that shutter open for maybe a couple of seconds or so. And when you're shooting something where you have a lot of bright, hot points of light in the photograph, you've got and who knows what kind of optics from this camera, but I'm going to guess this is probably uh, a medium focal length camera. 
And often people who are experts in camera lenses can look at, for example, uh, light flares in a lens. And they can tell you based on the shape and the arrangement, the configuration of the elements in a light flare, they can literally tell you what lens this was shot with. I'm not that good with photographic lenses, but I am fairly good with images. And what I can tell you is that I saw this photo, again, uncropped. And this uncropped photo, you see pretty clearly the light sources that are reflected in the lens that make up those lights up above. So I don't want to judge the book by its cover, but I know this image. And if I'm going to judge a book by its cover, then I have to now question the content of the book. It's a dilemma. It's a real dilemma because we want to understand what's going on here. But at the same time, you, you end up with situations where there's a photograph that's seen and people rush to claim its veracity and how interesting it is. And again, in this book, this guy is making a whole argument about, look, there's a stargate on the side of Capitol Hill. And there's not. There's reflected lights. So what? <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to put you on the spot here. I don't mind being on the spot. <laughs> it's not a dilemma for me. I'll read the book and then see what I think of it after okay. I read it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this is something that, you know, it's like when we see mass media coverage of the topic, Leo. You, you turn into Larry King, and he'll have on great guests like James Fox, absolutely solid documentary filmmaker who has really worked very hard to compile a tremendous amount of extremely compelling testimony and evidence. Extremely compelling. Really smoking gun stuff. But then they'll go to cut to a break, and they will use a photograph of the one-armed Swiss farmer who shot uh, pie plates. Just nonsense. And so there is this stirring together of legitimate testimony, legitimate stories, truly unexplained phenomena, combined with misinterpretations, hoaxes, fabrications. I mean, is this just the danger of being so open-minded that your brain falls out of your head? <laughs> if that's true, I'm there. I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind being that frank. But I have talked to people who have talked to Billy Meyer, and uh, they don't have the same view that uh, you express. So uh, I don't mind there being paradoxes. I don't mind there being dilemmas. I don't mind there being contentions. To my way of thinking, uh, that's just part of the game. It's uh, the build-up. You know, it's uh, here in the one corner we have truth and honesty. In the other corner. We've got evil uh, uh, denial. Well, that makes the contest exciting. In my opinion, uh, what we, whether we want to call it good and evil or whether we want to call it light or darkness, what do we want to call it? To me, that's the uh, hazing that's going on, the bulldogger on one side and the hazer on the other side, and seeking of truth in the middle. It's going to go on and on, uh, probably for many, for many eons. So I don't mind the... Uh, contrast or the dilemma as you describe it. Uh, what I seek is to learn as much as I can and to share what I have with other people who are interested. My wife claims that I share with people who are not interested, but then that's, uh, that's a little inside joke as to whether I'm a true professor. A professor professes and then maybe it falls on fertile minds, and maybe it doesn't. I'll tell you what about fertility. Okay. We become real fertile when we tell everybody that we have done one hour 
of our session with Dr. Leo Sprinkle. So fast. Tada. By the way, Leo, is there a place that we can get a hold of you online, our listeners, if they want to check out more of the things you do before we progress to our second hour? There are people who know this kind of thing. I'm one of those old dinosaurs that doesn't have up-to-date information on electronic communication. There are people who say that there's information online about me, but I don't have email. I don't have a computer. I just use snail mail or I use a telephone. My telephone number is 307-721-5125. Wow, you gave your phone number. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll tell you what, before people call him, before you call Dr. Leo Sprinkle, we'll be back on the other side of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietting. Hour two of a fascinating, wide-ranging discussion with Dr. Leo Sprinkle, and he's given us gracious permission to call him Leo. By the way, you have something in common with somebody else we know. I'm sure you know him too. Jim Mosley. Oh, yes. Right. He doesn't have online access. <laughs> you know, he doesn't even have a cell phone. Do you have a cell phone? I don't have a cell phone. <laughs> okay, so so far you're in agreement with him. He doesn't have a personal computer. I bet you do. Uh, no, I don't use personal computer. Hmm. Wow. No. Wow. We're the old generation. Someone asked me on a radio program, and I said, how old are you, Leo? I said, well, I'm eternal. The soul is eternal. <laughs> but my mind is about 18 or 19. My body at that time was 74, now it's 78. And, and he, what does your wife say to you about that? She says, said, no, he's about 3,000 years old. Yeah, she said, well, the guy said to me, you can't be 74. And I said, well, I'm not. My body is. So in our society, we tend to identify with the physical and biological world when we start identifying with the psychological and spiritual world, as the uh, quantum physics would suggest, that what we think of as physical reality is just little wavelets or little particles of energy whirling around. When we start thinking in those terms, uh, not only will the, uh, our perception be different, but our notion of reality will be different. And I think at that point is when humanity will become enlightened or will grow up or mature or whatever you want to call it. And so that we are not just focusing on the physical and biological world alone, but also focusing on the mental and spiritual worlds. Uh, I'm loath to bring this up, Leo, uh, but we finished the first hour with you bringing up the Billy Meyer case and that people uh, feel there's legitimacy to that. Early on in the history of the Paracast, for rather obvious reasons, because of the longstanding visibility of that religious cult, which is really what it is, um, in, in, in every way, when, when, when analyzed, what we have here is a religious cult. Uh, that's not my opinion. That, that's a fact. Uh, we analyzed, I, and, and I'm not going to go into this on the show because everybody already knows this, but uh, I have a strong reputation as an image analyst based on a challenge of one of the people who is a follower of that cult. Uh, I analyzed one image, took a look at a whole handful of them, and uh, certainly to my very trained eyes, uh, every single image that they purport to be of a UFO is fabricated. That's not an opinion. That is a statement of fact. When you look at the, not only, the, and, and, and essentially this is a, a UFO cult that has based its entire veracity on photographic images that are absolutely bunk. They're bunk. This is not, again, this is not my professional opinion. It's fact. It's, and I'm not the first person to point this out. Our friend Jeff Ritzman had taken uh, 
these people on early on and, uh, and rose to their challenge of fabricate, or duplicating a fabricated image. He did that completely successfully. The person who we went up against, who is the U.S. rep for this UFO cult, uh, we caught him red-handed fabricating people, fabricating testimonies, misrepresenting people's statements, pretty much in every way you could. And, yeah, so, and, 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 and what we did is basically put that case for us and for our listeners, certainly, it wasn't even very hard, Leo, to put that case to bed, really, truly. And, and so part of the task of, of moving forward with this discussion, if we're to evolve spiritually, uh, we have to realize that there are some things that are more likely to be true than others. And I'd like to think that no one has a, a, a stranglehold on truth, but at the same time, even in, in regards to the idea of, you know, with quantum mechanics, we have this huge effect on the universe around us. Well, certainly what we know through quantum mechanics is that the state of particles in this universe is very often influenced by whether or not those particles are being observed and the intention of the observer. Now, that you have on one hand, but I would, I would submit to you, Leo, that on the other hand, when you have 200 people on a plane and that plane is falling from the sky in a free fall, regardless of the intent, regardless of the desires, regardless of the attitudes of the people on that plane, if that plane hits the ground, those people are going to die. There are some... That's right. That's right. So, so there are some things that we, we can say are, I think, objective truth. And there are other things that are definitely open to interpretation. And it's my opinion that the problem is that people will grab a hold of a mundane, superficial explanation of quantum mechanics, quantum physics, and then they will extend that out. They will extrapolate that out to be the secret. If you ask the universe for things, the universe will give them to you. I personally find that so simplistic as to almost be ridiculous. The law of attraction, as they are describing, is only one of the laws of the universe. Yeah. Well, it, it, and, and, but when we talk about laws of the universe, how can we pretend to know the laws that govern this universe when we, up until two years ago, were not even aware of the matter that made up the majority of the mass of this universe? Where do we draw the line? Yeah, so we have a long way to go. And that's why I'm excited about the possibility that we might prepare ourselves to talk with ETs in case they've uh, gone farther down the road than we have and we can learn from them. A guy that I like is uh, Dr. Jim Deardorff. I don't know if you know his name. He's a, a retired professor uh, Oregon State University, astrophysics. And uh, he wrote an article years ago uh, on the uh, possible extraterrestrial approach uh, to humanity. Uh, he couldn't get it published in a U.S. Journal of uh, Astronomy, so it was published in uh, British Quarterly. But his hypothesis uh, is that uh, any contact by ETs would be slow, slow, slow. He argued that um, the, uh, the sightings which might happen to, you know, low-class people like me and others uh, uh, wouldn't make much of an impact. 
but later into the middle class and then the upper class of society. Uh, he argued that the uh, the government officials and the and the top scientists would be slow to catch on to that until everybody else was prepared. Uh, he called it the embargo on communication. But he called it a leaky embargo. And with a name like Sprinkle, I like that uh, leaky hypothesis. So that it would be a gradual process before the uh, uh, announcement would be made from public sources. And that seems to be uh, what's been going on for the last 50, 60 years. Well, okay. I, I don't want to be the bad guy. I swear, I don't want to be the bad guy. But sometimes I have to be the bad guy. Okay. So okay. So <laughs> you bring me, up. Tell, tell me well, where I'm wrong. Well, no, not you. Okay. Deerdorf. <laughs> this is guy. Well, you got to talk to him to find out if he's wrong. <laughs> no, I, I see. But the problem is, I don't, because what he's best known for is uh, someone who has promoted the idea that I hate to bring up the name again. I'm loath to bring him up, but the one-armed Swiss farmer guy has the real documentation behind the real history of Jesus, the Talmud of uh, Gemmanuel. Uh, just silly, nonsensical stuff when you look into the story, when you actually research the story. It's yet another piece of the puzzle of the Billy Meyer religious cult, where Meyer claims to be the reincarnation of Christ, and that he claims to have the real testament of what really happened, and that, oh, they found the documents in Jerusalem in 1963, and then, oh my God, look, they're all gone. Uh, the only thing that survives are Billy Meyer's transcripts. It's BS. It's nonsense. And so, again, I have to look at Deerdorf. I've never met the man. But yet again, it's another situation where here's a guy when this is the primary thing he promotes... I'm very sorry, but many of us who are thoughtful about this look at this guy and say, well, if, if this is the primary thing he's pushing, something that even a reasonably intelligent person can look at and go, well, this is just bunk. It's bunk. How do you then take anything else he says seriously? And, and Leo, I, I admire you in the calmness you bring to this and your open-minded attitude. Really, I, I don't want this to sound like I'm attacking you because I'm not. I really, I like what you're saying in, in most regards. And obviously, we're each entitled to our opinion. That's the nature of humanity. But in the case of Jim Deardorff, I'm sorry. He's just, he's not credible. And, and it's interesting that you brought him up because there was another person that the Meyer camp used as a credibility chip. Jim Delatoso, a fellow who I've actually gotten to know fairly well now. I met him at an X conference. And we confronted him about him, his statements and analysis about the Billy Meyer photos. And we got him to admit on tape, recorded, that basically they took his statements, they took his analysis out of context, and they distorted it. So, again, you, you start to look at, at the people who are, for example, associated with this case. And what you realize is that there's really nothing there. And we're at a point now, Leo, and again, I've expressed to you that I'm someone who has had a number of experiences, many of them with other witnesses. So I don't have to trust my perception of the situation. I had other people who saw the exact same stuff. Um, what I don't do is to pretend to have any definitive answers about sourcing of this, 
purpose of it, agenda. I think that's intellectual honesty. When, even when, for example, and and this is something I want to, I'd like to shift the discussion into your research with abduction cases, okay. because you've talked to a lot of people who have claimed to have been abducted, and. You know, there are some skeptics who would say, well, all of that is just basically psychological projection. And I find that really hard to believe. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that there are legitimate circumstances where people are being messed with. I don't want to say they're having interactions because some of them are just having interactions. But there are people who have fairly dark stories about things where they feel an extreme sense of fear. A complete lack of control. You know, the word rape is brought up more than a couple of times. And and when you bring up these topics, there you can start to feel the curtain of laughter descending. Oh, you know, they're going to start talking about anal probes. Well, no, there's something again. There's something going on. And how do you reconcile, Leo? The uh, many reports we've heard of negative interactions with the sense of a desire for us to evolve, and that being, to some extent, uh, the reality behind the interactions between humans and non-human entities. Because I'm not even willing to call them extraterrestrial entities. I think it's more accurate to refer to them as non-human entities. Yeah, and uh, some people talk about ultra-terrestrial as well as extraterrestrial, not only from other planets, but from other dimensions. And... uh, Certainly, when we talk about dimensions, there's the dark side as well as the, the light side. Correct. And uh, I can't say I know what the ultimate uh, answer will be mm-hmm. in terms of whether there are good guys, bad guys, you know, the war in heaven, as some people have talked about it. Right. But what I can claim is that uh, I've talked with enough people that I know uh, there is a difference in terms of how people respond. Just one example, you know, one guy at our conference, he said, Leo, I don't want to be called a contactee. I don't want to be called an experiencer. I'm an abductee. They took me out of my room and they did such and such and so forth. Mm -hmm. So many people have told me of what amounts to terrifying and hurtful. And in some cases, people feel like uh, illnesses or eye conditions or ear conditions or whatever right. uh, was a result of the trauma. Now, whether it was intentional or not, you know, we don't know. But, but many people have told me uh, what might be considered the dark side of the UFO encounter. Right. On the other hand, uh, you know, a guy like Jim Sparks in his book, he argued that. Uh, uh, he hated those little bastards. He wanted to, you know, strangle them with their scrawny little necks. And then later on, he began to realize that they were teaching. Uh, he didn't think it was a very pleasant uh, teaching, but he felt like he was learning something about language and about other things. So that's another side where people uh, with whom I've met over the years uh, have responded differently. One woman, for example, she came out of the hypnosis session. She was recalling being on board a craft. And... Uh, she was fearful, and she looked at me with uh, fear in her eyes. She said, Leo, do you think they're going to come back and take me away? And I said, I don't think you'll be that lucky. I said, I think you'll have to stay and work like the rest of us. Hey, before we let you go <laughs> yeah. to that next part of it here, we have a few bones to pick with Mr. Sparks, by the way. Okay. But before we do that, <laughs> boy, we're hitting you heavy, hard and heavy here, by the way. My- All right. Hi, 
Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO magazine. magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time when we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Leo Sprinkle, Dr. Leo Sprinkle, longtime veteran UFO researcher, and to be very frank, I think he is just a terrific person. But we're going to disagree. We're going to agree to yeah. disagree. And I think one of the areas where we can agree to disagree is Jim Sparks, because he's been on the show twice. Oh, okay. Twice, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, basically, we, we unraveled his story in, in two episodes and uh, uh, read his book cover to cover. The inconsistencies are about as regular as oxygen molecules in the air. Uh, the, the, the story is absolutely Dude. full of holes. No, it, it truly, his story has no internal logic of any sort. And, and there were some questions that we asked him that really revealed that he was essentially making it up as he goes. Further, further, um, what then happened, he had hired himself an agent, he was looking to make himself a name in the UFO field, and it got down to the equivalent of what happens in Hollywood when your movie ends up being depicted as title of your movie on ice. You know, it's the skating version. Jim Sparks on his website all of a sudden was starting to offer counseling to those who had had UFO encounters and alien experiences for it was either $75 or $100 an hour over the phone. End of Jim Sparks. And thank goodness he has sort of faded away from, from having a good amount of visibility in this field because, as I said, Leo, we, um, we, we unraveled his story rather handily, rather easily. It wasn't that difficult. It really wasn't. And the claims in the book, as the book went on, the claims in the book got wilder and wilder, again, to the extent where... All of a sudden, at the end of the book, Sparks sets up his next book by saying, well, then the time travelers started coming to find me and visit me, and I had great pleasure watching them unfold bills from different places in the timeline to make sure they had the right paper currency for the current time. 
I mean, before we let you continue with that, David, you really <laughs> should tell him when we had him on the show. Okay, just one second. We had him on the show, and David asks the question that is never asked. Yeah, he's no. on a spaceship for what nine hours? Well, now let's qualify this. Let's qualify this. My inspiration, Gene, for the question that I asked him, and I think Leo will appreciate this. Sure. I had read one of Jacques Vallée's books. He was talking about how he was at a conference, and he was talking to a bunch of people who were discussing underground bases like Dulce, New Mexico, um, that there was the huge underground base and that everybody knew where it was. And, and Vallée said something. He asked a question, and I totally got what he was doing. In the midst of all of these people, including Linda Moulton Howe, and I think Rick Doty and a bunch of other people who, um, and it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a curious stew, this one. Valet asked the question, so how do they get the garbage out? And everybody's like, what? He's like, well, if you have an underground base like that, they're obviously generating a huge amount of waste. Where do they take the garbage? And nobody, everybody just went nuts. They went, they either shut up or they realized that basically, they had been had. That's it. They, the, the one piece of logic, the mundane piece of logic, that if it's not answered, unravels the story. So what Gene is alluding to when we had him on the show, he basically kept saying about how you know, he'd be on the craft for nine hours or ten hours. They'd be teaching him an alphabet, and he never knew why they were teaching him this alphabet, that they were teaching this alphabet. And in the middle of the discussion, Leo, I stopped Oh, boy. Him. Yeah, I stopped him. <laughs> And I said, so, Jim, Where's the when, you, you got it. That's it. When do you pee? Excuse me. Let me applaud. No, I asked him, when I do you it. pee? And he's like, what did you say? I said, well, if you're sitting there for 10 hours, certainly you had to, you know, relieve yourself. Right. And this is where the guy had no prepared answer, Leo. He had, this was not part of his scripted spiel. And he caved in on himself. And he said, well, um. Oh, uh, um, oh, uh, I, I, I'm really good at holding it in. You know, it's like, come on, give me a break. Well, you know, there, there you go. And then he said, I'm really good at holding it in. And, and it didn't matter because at the end when they took my sperm, it, it all it all sort of went down then. And I thought, oh, come on. I'm not a doctor or biologist, but, you know, the the, the plumbing, for one thing, <laughs> is distinctly disconnected from the plumbing of the other. And when you're doing one, you're not doing the other. That's how the plumbing works. So it was nonsense. It was just nonsense. And the thing is that Sparks had all of these highly scripted answers, and the minute you took them off script, game over. It just fell right apart like a house of cards. And so, again, when we're talking about these things, I think it is important to have an open mind, and, and we really appreciate the open mind that you have with this. Gene and I are these diehard old-school New Yorkers who we, we, we have to ask the hard questions of some of these people because no one else is willing to do it. And, and, and we're talking about Logic 101. We're not talking about some great FBI-sanctioned interrogation technique. This is just basic logic. And, 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 you know, I, I think a lot of us realize that when we're talking about these topics, scientific understanding gets to a certain point and then it falls apart. We don't have instrumentation to measure certain things. We don't have awareness of the true nature of physical reality to understand how certain things are possible. But does that mean that we throw, we leave all logic checked at the gate and we proceed 
uh, with no discernment at all? Just remind me not to tell you about my book, because uh, if you read it, you'll find flaws, flaws, flaws. <laughs> well, no, no, and I don't want to sound like I'm looking for them, but no, no, no. I, I, look, it, one of the things that I'll say is that in my personal experiences, there are aspects of high strangeness that have happened to me in my experiences that make me skeptical of my own experiences, truly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and this has become a dilemma for me in my middle age. This has become a problem. Same, uh, same thing that Mike Cleland tells about himself, that he feels uh, in a dilemma because on the one hand he knows he's had his experiences, but on the other hand he can't reconcile that with uh, what's going on around him. And so it puts him into an awkward uh, situation philosophically. Absolutely. And Mike is a guy who's a friend of the show. I met him at the Jeremy Vaney's Culture of Contact I- I- event in Jersey City this last year. And uh, Mike Cleland is a great guy who we find highly credible. I think he's extremely credible. I think he's extremely bright. Um, happen to personally like him quite a bit. We've talked on the phone a bunch. And it's interesting, some of the similarities between what we're going through in terms of being at a certain age, having a certain a number of common elements to our backgrounds and being at this place in our lives where we feel compelled to talk about these things. It's almost as if there's an involuntary aspect to it. Is that something that in interviewing people, Leo, and in talking to people who have uh, paranormal experiences, and I'm not claiming an abduction experience of any sort, but in terms of just paranormal experiences, do you see a trend there? Is this something that you that you could basically statistically map out and say there is some percentage of the population that might be going through these experiences growing up that reach a certain age and then it's almost as if there's this mechanism that makes them talk about it? Good question. Uh, at the uh, uh, professional level, you know, psychologists uh, mapping, uh, there aren't enough psychologists uh, or uh, sociologists, uh, anthropologists who are doing this kind of thing to really know overall what's happening. I, I, I know some people who have uh, studied near-death experiences and written about it. I know some people who have studied near, near-death experiences and written about it. And I think we have yet to find some agency or some uh, organization that is uh, doing all of that. Now, there sometimes there are polls and can get at, you know, how many people claim this What's his name? He's now in Arizona. I'm having trouble remembering his name, but uh, a Catholic priest who uh, was in Chicago did uh, polls regarding paranormal phenomena. How many uh, wives claimed communication with their dead husbands? Uh, you know, how many people claimed this and that? Maybe I'll think of his name in a minute. But that kind of thing is being done in polls, and it's being done individually by some researchers. But overall. Uh, it'll be exciting to think of the possibility that someday there might be a kind of research center or base that would provide that. But just my own personal views, I find that more and more people are describing unusual experiences. Now, whether that's because more and more experiences are happening or whether people are more open to it, I, I don't know uh, the answer to that. But I do know that many people come to me individually and say, well, now, Leo, when I heard about you at the university you know, 20 years ago, I thought you were a kook. But now he said that I had this experience or that experience. 
And that's what led me to uh, interest in reincarnation. Just give you one example. A woman from Colorado, uh, she said that uh, she had a flying saucer experience. She was a farm wife. Flying saucer comes down in the pasture. She feels impelled to stop her pickup. She feels impelled to crawl through the barbed wire fence. She feels impelled to go inside. Uh, then she doesn't remember. And then she comes back. Well, during the hypnosis session, she felt like she was on a table. And these guys in masks were jerking around. She was she was crying out. She was in pain. She was uh, angry. She was fearful. And then in another session, she went back to what seemed to be an experience in another lifetime where she was a, a physician or a surgeon, and he was jerking his patients around. And then she thought to herself during that session, oh, you know, it's not nice to jerk other people around. So she connected those two in her mind. Mm. Now, whether you know whether that's true or not is a different question. But at least in her view, she felt that she learned about her uh, her current attitude, one of compassion toward people, as a result not only of the UFO experience, but helping her go back to what she felt was her previous experience. So I became interested in reincarnation and connecting that with the UFO experiences. Before we go into reincarnation and whether I'm reincarnated as something. No, that's not a part of it. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Dr. Leo Sprinkle joining us. We have another couple of segments to spend with him, and the subjects get more and more fascinating. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't always agree with him. He is such a gracious guest. So there you go, David. I've been asking all the questions I thought you'd I ask. I want to ask you about reincarnation. Okay. Okay. Since you raised the point of reincarnation, I get the impression you buy a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Okay. I, buy it, I buy it as a uh, source of information. Uh, now, like Jacques Vallée said years ago when he was looking at computerized uh, information about UFOs, he said, we can take the information, and even if we don't know where it's coming from or how valid it is, at least we can compare it. And that's where I like to use in regard to uh, talking to people about past lives. They may or may not be true, the images that come up, but the images can be helpful to people 
in sorting through what they're experiencing. But at that point, Leo, how do you separate a memory of a past life from the kind of experience that you have in dreams? Uh, let me give you an example. And of course, it doesn't matter because if the dream is helpful, that's that's another source of information. Sure. Sure. Uh, but I'll give you an example. A man and woman came to me from out of town. They wanted me to use hypnosis to help uh, the wife uh, overcome her fear of drowning. I said, well, I don't know if we'll be successful, but I'll be glad to work with you. So uh, we started in going back to what I thought might be childhood memories, you know, of uh, falling in a pool or maybe in a bassinet. And I said, and she couldn't remember anything that would uh, be helpful. So I, so I used the example, we'll go back to the earliest experience having to do with your fear of drowning. And boom, she went into what she thought was a different lifetime, a boy in the mid Midwest, USA, farm boy father was harsh and uh, and sometimes beat him and uh, the last memory in that so-called life what i call a pol possible other life that way i can remain uh, somewhat skeptical about it <laughs> uh, the last memory according to her uh, comments was that she would as the boy had gone ice skating fell into the ice underneath looking up through the uh, ice and uh, drowning and that was her moment of fear hmm. and that's why she was afraid of water well when she came back to the normal state I said uh, that's an interesting experience so what do you think of it and so she was describing her reaction to the uh, dream or the fantasy or the memory or whatever it was and then she said something interesting. She said, you know, and she reached back on her right side, in a rib cage, uh, middle of the back on the right side. Uh, she said, you know, all my life I've had this pain. And uh, she said during the uh, experience, uh, hypnosis session, the boy was kicked there by the mean father. And when she said, when I let go of that, came back to the normal state, she said, I no longer have that pain. Okay, so the skeptic could say, well, that was, uh, you know, a um, experience uh, psychological that caused her to uh, let go of whatever it was that was causing the pain in her lower back for all those years. And, of course, the, the debunker would say, well, she was lying. <laughs> and that could be. But on the other hand, to my way of uh, reacting to what she was saying, not only was she sincere, she was genuinely puzzled about it. So it's uh, one of hundreds and hundreds of experiences that I could share regarding what many people feel.